Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. For the last few weeks, um, if you've been here, I have not talked about Christmas, which is like taboo. Right? It's like, it's December. You know what you're supposed to talk about. It's like, I want carols. I want candy canes. I haven't even had a candy cane yet this year. It's like, like I haven't talked about Christmas at all, but today, guess what? We're kind of going to talk about Christmas. <laughs> and the reason is, is, is because there's something that's been stewing um, in my heart as it pertains to Christmas for a long time. And I think maybe a lot of us probably will not have heard a message directly on this, uh, but it's been something I've been stewing on. And so I'm excited to talk about it today. But before I do, we won't be here next week, Christmas. Um, we actually have a online kind of presented, um, it's kind of a worship and, and, uh, kind of acoustic um, thing that we did here, and then a message on Christmas, fully Christmas, I promise. Uh, And it will only be available actually for three days, so Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. If you know we don't live stream here, we're purists. It's a joke. So people are like, what does that mean? If you stick around long enough, you'll find out. Um, but, uh, But anyway... Um, so Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of next weekend, if you want to tune in, it'll just we'll just have it posted, and my wife will have it somewhere. I, I'm not the best at those details, but it's gonna it's a special experience. So I want to encourage you to check it out. But with that, today is what I'm kind of calling like it's like kind of Christmas, but we're gonna study genealogy. Now a lot of us are like, Amen, God. Heard a lot of good. Yes, people are like, Oh yes, pour it out, God. <laughs> but what's funny is this. And I think a lot of people don't understand the, uh, the actual importance of the genealogy because what you find is actually the very first passage of Scripture in all of the New Testament is genealogy. Matthew 1, 1 through verse 17, which is what we're going to be talking about today. The ver- if I were to ask you, hey, huge proponent of the first, of, of the last, of, of Jesus' self-proclaimed most important, uh, meaning, you know, I'm really focused on those things in Scripture, mainly because I believe for a lot of us, if I were to ask you, hey, what was Jesus' technical first words, we're kind of maybe a little bit biblically illiterate, which for me, it's hilarious because it typically comes along the lines of, I use first words ever. Didn't you know you'd find me in my father's house, consumed with all things him after his parents had lost him, right? His last words, his dying words on the cross, or his last words as he ascended, the, the Great Commission, or there's so many different layers and levels, but for me, what was fascinating is that genealogy is the very first passage of scripture we have in because it's actually sandwiched right before the birth of Jesus. And essentially, Matthew's kind of getting into his defense of why Jesus is the Savior. But before he even gets, and by getting into that defense, he gives a genealogy that kind of goes through the prophecies of the Old Testament to set the table for who and what Jesus would accomplish. Now, what's funny is, like I said, when we talk about Christmas, most of us probably have not heard a sermon at Christmas time on genealogy. If you have, good for you. <laughs> Just bear with me. Why? Because once again, it's not something that's kind of lumped into the Christmas story, even though it's the very thing that happens right before Matthew jumps into the birth story. And I believe when we break it down today, you'll understand the significance, importance, and it will frame Christmas in a new light for you. 
But before we do, I was, uh, I did missions back in the day. And by back in the day, I'm 47. Just kidding. Oh, David, thank you for the laugh. <laughs> Can always count on you. But, uh, but I remember I, I did missions when I was 18. I actually turned 31 this Friday. Don't say happy birthday. I know I will be Sabbathing. So you won't even be able to get a hold of me. Cause I shut my phone off for 24 hours. Cause we do it right. <laughs> Some people are like, what does that mean? Stick around long enough. You'll find out. Oh, but I remember when I was, when I was 18, I, I couldn't play in the NFL. Genuinely, I remember like my senior year rolling around and I'm like talking to my dad. He's like, so what are your plans? Like practically. I'm like, well, I I still think I could. (laughs) My dad's like, it's like, plus didn't help that I was 5'10", 145. A lot of heart though, if you couldn't tell, a lot of heart. So my, my senior year, I remember the whole year, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to try and like play D3. And then it's like when you start doing the math, I like, I, was, I did youth in college for, for years back in Michigan. It was funny because when students would come to me and talk about how they want to play D3 sports up there, I don't know how it is here. I'd look at them and I'd say, that's a great, they're like, I can get a scholarship. I'm like, no, you can get a $3,000 grant for a 40000 scholarship. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's literally worse than a scholarship. <laughs> But that was my mindset. It's like, God, I'm going to get like a grant or a scholarship. And then I start doing the math and I'm like, wait a second. So what happened is my dad says, Michael, why don't you just do a DTS, which DTS is a YWAM discipleship training school. So I did six months where I did a three month uh, training in Orlando, Florida. And then I went overseas to India and I loved it. It reframed my life and kind of gave me new purpose and perspective. But one thing that's funny is, is when you're 18, you have a list of necessities, And for me, an 18-year-old male, the the necessities are different than today, (laughs) right? When I went overseas, there wasn't like ATMs and stuff over in India where we were at. You only brought enough money to kind of survive on what you'd raise support in. And so the necessities for me were glass Cokes. (laughs) Yes, I said glass Coke, right? Glass Coke, American junk food. Why? Because when you eat curry every day for three months, come talk to me. It changes you, right? And th- that was it. That was my budget. <laughs> okay. I was like, everything I have is going to glass Coke and American Jew. I have a friend from, uh, from India. Or, uh, he's kind of really connected with, with India culturally. And it's funny because I, I joke with him because I was like, man, you know, I eat curry here and I eat curry there. And it was funny because I liked hot food over there. And so I'd be like, hey, you know, I'll take a little heat. And then after a week, I'd say no heat. And then after another week, every time I'd order, I'd say minus heat. Minus. And it was like enunciated. Why? Because I liked hot food, but there's a different level. And we kind of had backpacks that we'd broken it down into. And I'm in India and we're at the first place for like probably a week and a half or two weeks. And we leave and I forgot all of my bedding, pillows, sheets, sleeping bag, everything. Now what happened? Do I sacrifice the Coke and junk food money or do I suck it up for two and a half months and just sleep on the floor in a hoodie with balled up clothes? 
And so it's hilarious because to this day, I'm like thinking about it. I like, I'm like, I literally bypassed sheets, a sleeping bag, and a pillow so I could have junk food at 18. Wow. But it's funny because once again, it's like, it's like you, I knew what I wanted, but then I'd maybe forgotten something that was super important. And that's genuinely why I want to talk about the genealogy of Christ today. And I'm going to break it down a little bit is because I think a lot of us were so focused on the gift of Jesus, not understanding the significance of where Jesus has came from overlooking the details for who he was. And I want to encourage all of us today. See, even as I read this, it's going to be something where we're just like, what in the world are these names? What in the world is going on? But I believe there is symbolism and significance in these details that frame Christmas in a new way for all of us. So let's jump in. Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 17. Now, what's funny is this, actually, before I even read this, is what you may not know is the Christmas story is found in two separate locations, Matthew and Luke. Now, if you actually break down in Matthew and Luke, uh, kind of synopsises, and what I mean by that is that uh, one kind of frames the details around the birth and then almost like skips over the birth. The other one, Luke just goes crazy in depth and into detail. And so what's funny to me, though, is genealogy is actually found just as many times as the Christmas story. Just as many times the genealogy is. And what's funny is some of the names are different in, in different ones. Significance, I believe, in the names that he chose. And ultimately, I cannot stress enough the fact that the very opening of all of the New Testament is genealogy. Let's read. Here we go. Get ready for a lot of names, but don't worry, I'll break it down. Matthew 1, 1 through verse 17, it says this, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Judah, the father of Perez and Zariah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Incredible name there. I, I, okay, people weren't really paying attention. <laughs> it's like, if you name your kid Ram, you get bonus points here. I don't, know, I don't know why. There's a couple names in here that you can steal them, and I will greatly respect you. One of them is Ram. Um, okay, now we're going to get into the fun ones. Ram was the father of Amon Adab. Amon Adab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Saman. Saman was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijai. Abijai, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh. I haven't messed any of these up so far, if anybody's keeping score. And if I have, just don't tell me. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shetel, and Shetel the father of, who? here we go, Zerubbabel. Man, I have these broken down literally in their syllables, but it's, when you're under pressure, it's hard. Lost by Ebahud and Ebahud, the father of 
Elikim and Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Ikim, Ikim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, made it through, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation, Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, What's funny is I did a deep dive on kind of what those 14 generations mean. There's a lot of kind of different uh, commentaries out there as it pertains to those, the significance and the symbolism of those things. But essentially, it, it, the one that's kind of most common is this idea. They, they attributed generations to 35 years in which they would count after. So it was a period of 490 years in each one of these. Uh, that it, it's like this equal kind of symmetric time, as well as the fact that they believe 14, that it's the sevens being completed, um, seven being the number of completion. We're not going to get a ton into that because what I want to do today is focus on eight things you must know about Jesus's line before you, you understand your role in his line. Eight things you need to know about his ancestral line before you understand your role in his line going forward. And the first one is this. I'm going to give you two easy ones. And what's going on here is that the prophet, or Matthew, is, is making sure that the prophets are all lined up pointing. And there's a lot that goes into detail on the Messiah. But specifically what we, two easy ones, is we know that the lion from the tribe of Judah, we know Jesus needs to come from the tribe of Judah. So what happens, right, is he actually starts with that by kind of narrating down what tribe Jesus came from. So that's really an easy one out of the gate. The second one is that he must be connected to Abraham and David. So what he's doing is first he's establishing Judah and then he's establishing this idea of the Abrahamic covenant, and so Jesus' ancestral line, he's tracing back to the original covenant when God, I'm going to be with you. I've called you into a new land. And ultimately, he's reframing that Jesus' life through the instance of, hey, guess what? This is where he came from, and he is a fulfillment of that covenant. Then the next one, we see David, which ultimately, if you don't know David, that's the most famous king in the Old Testament. And from David, we see that he has, he has connections to David. So the easy ones are out of the way. Lion of the tribe of Judah, David, it gets interesting. And once again, I'm talking to you about things that you didn't know about Jesus' line that may be significant and symbolic to the line that you're being called into. The third one is this, genealogies never had women in them up till this point, never. Now, I love the symbolism of this. Why? Because even in this day and age, we still have debates on the role of women in ministry and different things along those lines. In my opinion, what we see here forming is Jesus setting the, or Matthew setting the table that Jesus works through women, but not even just through women, but the type of women that he moved through. Think about it. Rahab, right? Ruth. Ruth, in my opinion, I did a teaching on this um, 
months ago, but Ruth is one of the more fascinating. Somebody raised as a Moabite. Now think about this. If you know the Ruth incest with one of his daughters and then produced a people group from it. How do you guys know? That sounds like something Jesus should come through. An idolatry, lust-filled, incestual relationship. That sounds like something Jesus would come from. You guys, that's a joke, obviously. But Ruth and Rahab, Rahab the prostitute that houses the the men in Jericho, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just point to women in his symbolism of what he would come from. He points to women that ultimately you would never think he would come from. And I think the first stories or looked at who we are and we've overlooked ourselves based off of what we've came from, not knowing what God wants to come through. And it's your life and it's who you are. See, you are not one of seven billion. You are not just one that just popped onto planet Earth and hopefully will find your way forward. No. You're one made in the image of an almighty father. You are one that he's placed a good work inside of you that he wants to see come to completion. No, you... You're somebody different. See the ancestral line that we're breaking down in the beginning phase. Let's get the flashy ones out of the way. Abraham, David... Let's get the flashy ones. And by David, I mean David Elm. I don't know why. I I was hoping to say that earlier, but it took forever. Abraham, David, Judah. These are things that every commoner would have associated with. Of course, Jesus is going to come from this. But then women. Not just any women, though. Overlooked women. Not just overlooked women, marginalized women. Not just marginalized women, but stereotyped and like stay away from women. Think about that. Once again, when we reframe Christmas through this lens, what we start to see is Jesus is establishing a new definition of what can and cannot be used. And I believe in this day and age, this is what God is doing. May I re-need the social media platform and influence. You don't need the charismatic personality. You don't need the perfect image and put together lifestyle. You need a depth of obedience and an ability to step out in faith. See, that's what defines Rahab. That is what defines Ruth. Does that, is that what defines you? Because if it is, that's something God can Right? So once again, our first ones, right? We had, we had the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The second one, right? We're talking about Abraham and we're talking about David. The third one, though, we're talking about women and not just women, but women with kind of a little bit of sketchiness. Just say that, a little sketchy. Then the fourth is this. Jesus' line is laced with extreme sin. And extreme, in my opinion, is an understatement, and you'll see why. Extreme sin and disobedience, when her story is researched, she's a product of rape and incest. Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabite, Solomon the product of a murderous affair. But my personal one that is like insane is Manasseh. If you recognize that name, Manasseh is, a, is in the Old Testament identified as the most wicked king to ever rule. Isn't it interesting, once again, that what we see within the biblical narrative is extreme wickedness to the profound level of prophets saying, hey, this is the worst guy ever in power. Jesus is like, I'm going to come from that, though. 
Doesn't make any sense, right? And it shouldn't. But that's what I'm trying to to frame us through is that I think a lot of us, what we do is we look at Jesus and we say, this is how it should work. This is how it should be. This is how everything is supposed to act. And what God is saying to you today is, listen, no longer. My goal with this sermon is for us to never look at God and say, you don't know what I came from because God is looking at you and saying, you don't. And that's, the, that's genealogy, is the disciples he came from never questioned where you could come from. Look at what he's walked through. Look at the people he's associated with. He's not going to not associate with you. See, Manasseh, in my opinion, is the standalone reasoning behind this entire point. Because the most wicked, wicked king... And in fact, you actually research the story. He's so wicked that his father, Hezekiah, who in my opinion, I absolutely love the Old Testament imagery of his story. Hezekiah is a man who God shows up and he says, hey, so righteous. It says that he sent a prophet to tell Hezekiah he was going to die. Hezekiah rises from his bed, puts his face against a wall, crying out to God to not allow him to die. And God allows him to live. But the reason... That God was trying, he was calling him home, was because in those extra years that God gave him, Manasseh came forward. Now, I love the, the imagery of that even, right? Hezekiah, this righteous king, to change his mind, not knowing that God was actually trying to protect the kingdom and not just harm him. Think about it, though. Manasseh was so wicked that God wanted to end his father's life before he could be produced. Let that sink in. And then ask yourself the question, why is it that I think my wickedness can't be covered by the grace? Can't be covered by the love of God? Cannot be accepted into the kingdom? Think about that. Because Jesus' line is laced. And once again, I felt like extreme sin was an understatement. And that we're not even talking about disobedience yet. If you look at these stories, and I were to spend weeks on them, you would see that most of these people, yes, there was moments of righteousness, but there was moments of extreme disobedience. And isn't that how shame creeps in? Isn't that how condemnation creeps in? The moment that we're disobedient, we, uh, we look at God and say, all right, I think I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I failed you too many I pray you think of the example that was set before Jesus even came to this earth of this is what I came from, but this is what I'm going to do. And that is my heart today is that no matter what you came from, you're not focused on what you came from. You're focused on what God is wanting to do. Extreme sin and extreme disobedience. So once again, right, we started with the easy ones. He's got to be from Judah. He's got to be from the tribe of David. He's got to be from Abraham. Then we fo- huge deal. There's women in the genealogy. Then we focused on, wow, there's extreme sin and disobedience. Okay, this is starting to get a little weird. Then what we see is there's like this balancing act back and forth. And what I mean by that is there's these extremely wicked men, but there's also these incredible, incredible examples of people who carried renewal and carried revival in their days. I know I just rent, mentioned King Hezekiah, but about eight years old, ascends to the throne, just finds some dusty scrolls, reads them as the word of, the God, word of God, and just says, all right, we're destroying everything, tearing it up, and rebuilding this thing from the ground up. And Josiah leads a reformation that restores Israel back to the covenant. 
And what I'm trying to say is this, is whether you're on the spectrum of extreme sin and disobedience or leading national reformation, there's a spot for you in the future of Christ. Because he pointed out in his past what he came from. And I think a lot of us, what we do is we point out our past, what we come from, and don't realize the power of what he wants to take us to if there's a place of obedience, submission, and sanctification to the Father like his life was. I also think it goes without saying that as, we, as you come into the Christmas season, the ordinary parts of Jesus, 30 years of obscurity, not even obscurity. I researched the town that Jesus was, was born in and raised in, actually. Back when I was in, in Michigan, before I came here, we had how we got here, but we're here now. 12,000 people, our county 60,000. There was a town called Hartford in that town. And Jesus' town, and to, to kind of create this picture, Jesus' town was half the size of Hartford. Which, to people where we were at, were like, oh my gosh. Jesus' town today that he came from is essentially as big as an apartment building in Scottsdale. The obscurity of this talent, this platform, all of these things, not realizing that 30 years of Jesus' life was, he was nothing. And once again, as we start to frame just his life, but also what he came from, there's nothing that could have, should have been anything significant other than obviously being a son of God, but full submission, devotion, and obedience to his father. And see, that's what genealogy is in, in far, where we're at right now is whether that's reformation and revival from the lens of King David, King Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, some of these kings, or whether in NASA and Amon and some of these old, these, these guys who were terrible guys, whatever it is, or just obscurity. And you don't feel like you're anything. Whatever that spectrum is. Obedience, submission in lifestyle, practice, habits, rhythms, and routines. That is what determines the course and the trajectory of who you will become in Christ. Another fascinating one that I believe is, is greatly overlooked. So once again, I'm kind of giving you eight things to know about Jesus's line before you understand your role in, in, in the line now. And it's right. We had the tribe of Judah. We had Abraham. We got David. We've got women. We've got extreme sin. We've got incredible reformation like revivalists. But this last one, I believe, is is super. Um, it's super disheartening. Now it's framed how I focus on um, genealogy study is what I noticed in judges is very rarely did Christ centered lifestyle and functionality of the family unit transcend more than two generations. And what you see is somewhere along the line, it's essentially like righteous men raise up a righteous son and then that son kind of raises up. And there's no, like, righteousness unto righteousness. An entire book of Judges, God would raise up a redeemer, the redeemer would reign, and then there wouldn't really be anybody behind him, and then they fall into sin. And then they'd cry out, God would raise up a redeemer, and the redeemer would come, and then the redeemer would have all this, and then he would deliver, and then the redeemer would die off, and they'd fall into sin. Hundreds of years of this. 
And I believe the challenge for us today is to think sustainably about what it means to raise up righteousness. Not just righteousness of I want to practically live out righteousness, teach others how to practically live that out, and then see that lived out in their children and their children's children. The greatest issue in Scripture was not people's disobedience. In my opinion, the greatest thing in Scripture was people just forgetting the goodness of God. Forgetting what God had done. Forgetting about the things that, the things that Jesus had done. Forgetting about these things. And in my opinion, if you're a believer in the church today, your greatest challenge will be how you raise up righteousness and righteousness and righteousness. Because in the Old Testament, that was the greatest problem they had. There'd be a mighty, awesome king. And he'd try his best, but they're just... Something didn't click. And I feel like that's a challenge to me of God. I will raise up righteousness that will extend farther than just me. And what does that look like to you? I hope you think very rarely was there two generations of godliness. There'd be godliness, wickedness, godliness, wickedness, wickedness, godliness, godliness, wickedness, wickedness, wickedness. Never any continuity between sustainably walking with God All the days of our lives. I already talked about this, but the full spectrum, and I just want to read you how full this spectrum was. The Jew and the Gentile, the free and the female, the king or royalty and the ordinary, the wicked and the righteous. See, this was Jesus' line that he comes from. And he came from everything and as as an example to show you, you can come from anything. And I think a lot of us, what we look at is we look at what we've came from and not realize that God came from literally the full spectrum. And he did that as an example. These writers did this as an example because macro deep level. And so as he's naming these people, people were listening and saying, wow, he came from came from them. Came from them. He came from a woman. He came from Manasseh. He What? And he did that on purpose, almost to offend the mind that Jesus, our Messiah, is here. And he is not for just a cookie-cutter narrative of who can have him or not. See, most people had assimilated holiness with Leviticalness. If you were in the Levitical priesthood, you were holy. But anything outside of that, man, it was just tough to decipher. What Matthew's doing is he's tearing down that fabric of holiness, not as this select tribe that you're a part of, but now this Messiah is purchasing you the right to be a part of something you never thought you could be a part of. Isn't that a fascinating to the Christmas story? That it's no longer about who or what our names have been attached to in this realm, but now the choice that our name could be attached to something that transcends all time or imagination. My final point is this, very important for you to understand. Jacob was the father of Joseph. And listen to this, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. I'm going to read this again, and I want you to catch and see if it ever names Jesus or Joseph as Jesus' father. It says this, Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. 
I think it's interesting that it traces his life. It's almost like the author of Matthew is reframing earthly father through heavenly father. I'm going to say that again. I think it's important for us to realize that even as it gives the parents of Jesus, it doesn't acknowledge fatherhood in the earthly sense upon Joseph because it's reframing earthly to heavenly. The adoptive narrative, and I believe a lot of us, what we've done is we've framed heavenly fatherhood through earthly fatherhood. And what we see here is Christ, Christ's line, when we step, start with heaven and then perceive earth through it. There's an adoptive nature to this verse of, yes, there's an earth, get, I'm your father. And I think that is so important for us because what we do is we frame everything we perceive through eternity through the lens of earthly. And God wants to challenge you today, yes. And for some of us, we've had fathers who failed us. Some of us, we maybe didn't even know our fathers. And the adoptive element of this genealogy is, hey, I'm your father. Even if everybody knows the name of who your father was, even if that's the assumption of who it is, I am. And I'm here to produce something new and different in your line. And there is nothing you could have done or can do that I haven't already came from. Christ came for all by showing he came from all. I'm going to say that again. Christ came from all. And for some of us, we don't realize that Christ came for us because we've looked at him and said, well, do you know what I've came from? And God's saying, no, do you know what I came from? As we step into Christmas today, I pray that you realize that Christ's genealogy before this biblical narrative of the Christmas story really seeps into our pores this week, that you recognize The Christmas story starts with the genealogy first, and it does it on purpose. Everything to show you can come from everything. Let's stand to our feet. If you're new here, you know that I kind of write out a prayer um, over us, um, specifically and strategically around the sermon. So whatever your receptivity or posture is to receive, I pray that we would just close our eyes and whether that's we want to open up our hands or kind of just quite important today for us to realize. And I think for a lot of us in closing, there is no argument to be made that you have been disqualified from grace when the study of Jesus' own lineage shows all that he came from precursor of what he purchased for you was the lineage that was recorded of him. So I pray you would receive this prayer. Today, Father, we come to draw closer to you, to learn about what you came from, to better understand where you were going the symbolism of your birth being so much more than just a Messiah in a manger, shepherds in a field and a star in the sky. Jesus, we rejoice knowing the gift that you brought. Help us when we want to invalidate, disregard, and to remember the names connected to yours.
the names of those with both struggles and triumphs, wickedness and redemptive power, kings and ordinary men and women, Jew and Gentile, we seek today to realign ourselves with your story. That just as scripture says you learned obedience through the things that you suffered, so too we do not speak obedience without an awareness of suffering purpose of God in man. I pray today we are given eyes to see the redemptive purposes you have within our lives. This Christmas season, we do not lose sight of the author and the finisher, the perfecter and the sustainer, the baby and the manger, Christ, our creator. And your timeless and endless ability to lift up and renew your fallen creation Thank you for the gift of your son. And today, may that gift be used in our lives for the power that it possesses to change the world. Christ is born.